Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Tuesday, August 11th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Is it a good idea to clean your face mask by putting it in your rice cooker? The weird, defunct rides of Disney theme parks past? Why scientists want farmers to paint their cows' butts? And how to watch the Perseid meteor shower tonight. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So we all know by now that N95 masks are pretty much the best mask to wear that protects both you and people around you from transmission of small viral particles. They should also be mostly reserved for healthcare workers. And they're technically only supposed to be worn once, or at maximum three times, hence the incredible shortage. But if you happen to have an N95 mask yourself and want to take advantage of the one that you have by reusing it, scientists at the University of Illinois, in a study supported by the Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Department of Agriculture, have found a convenient way to sanitize the mask without limiting its effectiveness. They say that you can put the mask in a rice cooker or instant pot for 50 minutes to decontaminate it both inside and out without damaging the filter or warping the shape of the mask. Quoting Popular Mechanics, The team of researchers found that their sanitation method was effective on four different virus classes, including the coronavirus, and was found to be more effective than ultraviolet light. They also found that the masks were able to perform their job and keep out harmful contaminants even after 20 cycles of decontamination in the electric cooker, end quote. This tracks with what Peter Tsai, the inventor of the filter inside the N95 mask, found earlier this year. In his finding, validated by the National Institutes of Health, N95 masks can be heated at 158 degrees Fahrenheit for 60 minutes using a dry heat method without diminishing the filtration technology. The University of Illinois team suggests doing only 50 minutes at 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees Celsius, so your mileage may vary here, but the key is that dry heat. And the University of Illinois team have verified that using a rice cooker or instant pot as the source of that dry heat, something folks are likely to have around at home, works just as well as large-scale heat sanitization equipment. I was reorganizing my cleaning supplies recently and discovered that a mask I've used in the past when, you know, cleaning with more heavy-duty chemicals was actually an N95. I had no clue that I've had an N95 just sitting around my house this entire time because, to be honest, I wasn't really familiar with it before this whole pandemic kicked off, so I'd never noticed. But I haven't used it because I figured it's definitely been used too much or is maybe expired, but I also just deep-cleaned my rice cooker, so... Maybe now is the perfect time to test out this method. I'll let you know how it goes. Some Disneyland rides have become iconic in our cultural consciousness. Space Mountain, a haunted mansion, it's a small world. Apologies for that. Others were so popular that they became major motion pictures like Pirates of the Caribbean. And yet others sputtered out and faded away into obscurity. Because Disney gets it right so often and is so universally beloved, I kind of like hearing about ideas they've had or things they tried that were just plain weird. Like the Cinderella Castle Mystery Tour in Disneyland Tokyo. This one was actually quite popular, and it ran from 1986 until 2006, and frankly, sounds awesome. 
It was basically a guided tour where you met all of the great Disney cartoon villains via animatronics or video. And then at the very end, the Horned King from the Black Cauldron appears and kidnaps everyone and says he's going to throw them in the cauldron. But then there's a rider who had been gifted a sword earlier in the ride who's tasked with destroying the Horned King. I mean, how cool is that? I am frankly shocked that the U.S. counterparts don't have any type of villain ride, you know, with how popular Halloween celebrations are at the park, and not to mention the veritable cults around the haunted mansion. And because back in the day, there wasn't anything scary at Disneyland, unless you count the haunted mansion as scary, by the early 90s, it had become very unpopular with teenagers. So Disney chairman and CEO Michael Eisner tried to get them to install an alien ride, as in the 1979 movie Alien. This was actually the second time Disney had tried to make an alien-themed ride. In the 80s, a ride called Nostromo, in which riders had to shoot down xenomorphs with laser guns, was proposed, but never made it past the design phase. Then, in 1989, the Alien franchise got a small nod in Disney World's The Great Movie Ride at MGM Studios, which was so successful they were eager to incorporate more Alien, and the renovating of Tomorrowland, to keep it set in the future and not the present, seemed like a great opportunity. Unfortunately, not everyone was on board. Some Disney Imagineers disagreed with adding a ride based on an R-rated movie, and also one which contradicted the optimistic vision of the future that Tomorrowland was based on. So they pivoted to make it a generic alien-themed ride and enlisted the help of George Lucas to give it an extra punch. Now, while this new version was less gory, it was just as eerie. So eerie that signs were posted in front of the ride warning that it was too scary for children and even some adults. Basically, the riders were strapped into seats in a theater in the round, and on the stage was an alien lab demonstrating their teleportation technology. But it malfunctions, and the gory-looking animatronic alien escapes just as all the lights flicker out. Quoting Mental Floss, Through strategically placed speakers and 4D devices, riders heard repulsive slurping and crunching noises, and then were sprayed in the face with warm water, making them think that they had been splattered with fresh blood. At one point, harnesses pressed down onto the riders' shoulders to make them feel as if the monster was crouching on top of them. Warm air and water released from the seats replicated what it might feel like if the creature was slobbering down the back of each audience member's neck. Instead of watching the horror unfold on a screen, each guest was made to feel as though the alien was stalking them personally. Screams filled the room from start to finish, though it wasn't always possible to tell which cries for help were coming from audience members and which were part of the scripted show. End quote. It genuinely terrified kids, and probably some adults as well, but teenagers loved it, and it stuck around until 2003 when it got replaced by a Lilo and Stitch ride. A travesty. Long before that, though, that same ride was something else that had a totally legit reason for being retired. In 1955, Disneyland used that space for a simulation ride called Rocket to the Moon, which was later replaced with Flight to the Moon, both showing what it would be like to, you know, go to the moon. Shockingly, this became a heck of a lot less exciting in 1969 when we first actually landed on the moon. But the ride did stick around until 1975 when it got updated for the next great space race, Mission to Mars. There are so many other weird, defunct rides at Disney that I might have to dig deeper into the lore and do another segment in the future, but I will leave you with one last one from the 60s that was perhaps too ahead of its time. 
For five brief years in the 60s, Disneyland played host to some flying saucers. They were these individual-sized flying saucers that the rider would sit in and could fully control the driving of, but which hovered eight inches off the ground using air vents, a technology that was invented and patented specifically for the ride. Now, you might be thinking, if Disney invented this in the 60s, why haven't we seen more technology like this, even if just at amusement parks? Well, turns out it only really worked if riders were just the right weight so it wasn't really much fun for a lot of people who tried it. The ride was nixed five years after opening when Tomorrowland got its first big renovation. And considering the Tomorrowland that housed those flying saucers was supposed to represent the year 1986, I am very upset that we are not three decades into hovering cars. I mean, we have really dropped the ball on hover technology as a society. But nonetheless, Disney parks are always changing, updating rides, and giving them new themes, like changing the Tower of Terror to the Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout ride, and updating Splash Mountain to be themed around the Princess and the Frog, which makes way more sense for the neighborhood it's in in the park, apart from also being less racist. And I do wonder if we'll see any rides inspired in some way by our new normal of social distancing and low contact. Now, I can't quite think what that might be, but I have no doubt that the Imagineers are already thinking in that direction. Wild animals like lions and leopards are a major threat to cows, and by proxy, the livelihoods of many farmers. And because they're such a threat, many farmers kill them or find other lethal solutions either to retaliate or prevent the large predators from attacking their cattle. This is one of the factors that has led to sharp decline in lion and other carnivorous wild animal populations. So scientists are out to find a solution. The latest one? Painting eyes on the backsides of cows. See, lions and other large cats use the element of surprise to attack their prey, hunting and skulking from a distance until the time is right. But if their prey notices them, they usually back off and give up. So, as outlined in a new article published in the journal Communications Biology, scientists tested their theory of painted eyes on cows in the Okavango Delta region of Botswana, where livestock losses to large carnivores is common. Initially, the study included all kinds of predators, from leopards to hyenas, but it soon became clear that lions were by far the most common culprits, so the study was narrowed specifically to lions. Quoting Science Alert, Working with Botswana predator conservation and local herders, we painted cattle from 14 herds that had recently suffered lion attacks. Over four years, a total of 2,061 cattle were involved in the study. Before release from their overnight enclosure, we painted about one-third of each herd with an artificial eye spot design on the rump, one-third with simple cross marks, and left the remaining third of the herd unmarked. We carried out 49 painting sessions, and each of these lasted for 24 days. The cattle were also collared and all foraged in the same area and moved similarly, suggesting they were exposed to similar risk. However, the individuals painted with artificial eye spots were significantly more likely to survive than unpainted or cross-painted control cattle within the same herd. In fact, none of the 683 painted eye cows were killed by ambush predators during the four-year study while 15 of 835 painted and 4 of 543 cross-painted cattle were killed. These results support our initial hunch that creating the perception that the predator had been seen by the prey would lead it to abandon the hunt, end quote. 
The researchers say they're not aware of any naturally occurring eye-shaped patterns on animals that are known to deter predators. But given these results, they wonder if the finding could somehow be adapted to deter human-wildlife conflicts as well. And one caveat they bring up is that the eye-marked cows might have fallen prey to the lions if the unmarked cows hadn't been there to be attacked first. They also say it may be something the predators figure out and get used to, like scarecrows, which often work the first time, but birds quickly cotton onto the trick, which explains in part why some farmers change the scarecrow's clothes to keep the birds on their toes. Overall, these scientists say it is just another strategy to add to the toolbox, And I will add that the painted eyes on the cows, you can check out the picture at the link in the show notes, really make it look like the cows are part of the Illuminati. So, really, win-win. The annual Perseid meteor shower has been going since July 17th and will continue until August 26th, but tonight, August 11th, it will be at its peak, giving you the best chance of catching a glimpse of it this year. Quoting the New York Times, If you spot a meteor shower, what you're usually seeing is an icy comet's leftovers that crash into Earth's atmosphere. Comets are sort of like dirty snowballs. As they travel through the solar system, they leave behind a dusty trail of rocks and ice that linger in space long after they leave. When Earth passes through these cascades of comet waste, the bits of debris, which can be as small as grains of sand, pierce the sky at such speeds that they burst, creating a celestial fireworks display. A general rule of thumb with meteor showers, you're never watching the Earth cross into remnants from a comet's most recent orbit. Instead, the burning bits come from the previous passes. For example, during the Perseid meteor shower, you're seeing meteors ejected from when its parent comet, Comet Swift-Tuttle, visited in 1862 or earlier, not from its most recent pass in 1992. That's because it takes time for debris from a comet's orbit to drift into a position where it intersects with the Earth's orbit, according to Bill Cook, an astronomer with NASA's Meteoroid Environment Office, end quote. And some tips on how to see the meteor shower from Bad Astronomy at Sci-Fi, quote, In general, it's best to go out after local midnight, literally halfway through the night, so around 1 a.m., because that's when the part of Earth you're on is facing into the direction of Earth's motion, increasing the number of meteors. This is the same effect as rain always appearing to come from in front of you when you drive through it in a car. However, tonight the third quarter moon rises around midnight and is bright enough to spoil things somewhat. It probably won't be bad until about 3am though, when it's high enough to light up the sky. Tomorrow night it rises an hour later, so that might be better. But still, you don't have to be up at the wee hours to see the meteors any time after 10pm should be okay, it's just that you won't see as many." End quote. Further, seasoned astronomists recommend ditching the telescope or binoculars. You want to be able to see the full sky and not restrict your view. Naturally, you'll want to be as far away from light pollution as you can, and remember that it can take up to a half hour for your eyes to fully adjust to the dark, so build that into your planning. Unfortunately, if you, like me, live somewhere with too much light pollution to catch a glimpse of the meteors, NASA, the Lowell Observatory, and others will be streaming it live this evening. Links to watch those in the show notes. And you can also listen to the meteor shower at livemeteors.com. Yes, actually listen to it. Quoting Sci-Fi, The vapor trail left by a meteor reflects radio waves, creating a radio echo that, when translated into sound, can be quite eerie. End quote. So, lots of ways to watch and listen to the sky falling tonight. 
That's it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you all have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.